Welcome to the West Virginia Writers Podcast, a service of West Virginia Writers Incorporated, the Mountain State's largest all-volunteer nonprofit organization dedicated to writers. Established and incorporated in 1977, West Virginia Writers continues to support writers and writing statewide through program sponsorship, an annual writing contest, and an annual summer writers conference. This podcast is dedicated to promoting the organization, its members, and events, as well as writers throughout Appalachia and beyond. And now, here is your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Thank you, Gertrude and Ola listeners. Welcome to Episode 75 of the West Virginia Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Fritzhughes. Well, the weekend of August 7th and 8th marked the 4th Annual Lewisburg Literary Festival here in my neck of Greenbrier County. This is an event I enjoy every single year, and not just because I'm one of the people who helps plan and organize it. It's always a fun two days with guest speaker authors as well as writing workshops and a literary town square where books can be found for sale from regional publishers, distributors, and authors. In fact, I got to count myself among those authors this year due to my table where I was promoting my new collection called A Consternation of Monsters. But enough about that. It was a great time getting to hang out with folks like West Virginia Writers Parliamentarian Elliot Parker, who I hope to have on the podcast when his new book comes out next year. Also got to hang out with Kat Pleska, our former president, who I will have on the podcast as soon as I finish her new memoir, Writing on Comets. One of the people I was especially looking forward to meeting this year, though, was author Ed Davis. Ed is someone I've been familiar with for the past 14 years or so. The very first book review I ever wrote was for his first novel, I Was So Much Older Then. And this was way back in the year aught too. I wrote a review of his second book, The Measure of Everything, a few years later. And if there's anything that I learned from the review writing process for those books and the others that I've written in between those and after, it's that writing a good book review is really hard work, and it takes me way more time than it probably should. When West Virginia University Press recently published Ed Davis's third novel, The Psalms of Israel Jones, I considered adding another review to the mix for it. It seemed only fitting that I make it a trilogy. However, constraints on my time are pretty tight these days, hence why this podcast gets posted only once every few months instead of at least once a month as I had intended. So, instead of writing a formal book review, I invited Ed to sit down for an interview during the literary festival itself. What follows is a recording of that interview as conducted in the Nick Rahal room of the Greenbrier County Convention and Visitors Bureau in downtown Lewisburg. And as you'll be able to hear in the background, the festival was in full swing. So, Ed Davis, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Eric. Glad to be here. Some of our listeners may know you from previous workshops you taught at the West Virginia Writers Summer Conference. It's been a while, though, since you last taught. It has. It must be at least five or six years since I was there. Who are you and where do you come from, for those who, who aren't familiar with you from? Okay, uh, born and raised in Princeton, West Virginia. Then after graduating from WVU in 1976, I had the good fortune to travel to uh, Dayton, Ohio, where I got a job at Wright State University teaching English. From that, uh, I went to Sinclair Community College in Dayton also, where I spent 33 years toiling in the... English teaching trenches and retired from there in 2011. Uh, During that time, I became a writer 
and met a whole lot. Dayton is quite a writing community, mm-hmm. and Sinclair Community College had lots of writers, so I got in with that bunch and decided that's where I belonged and uh, published a lot of poetry. It was easy to publish in those days, and eventually gravitated toward fiction. Hmm. Um, and I'm familiar with you from your first two novels, uh, which I have previously written reviews for. I think the first uh, was I, I Was So Much Older Then, mm-hmm. your first novel. And Correct. I think I first became aware of that in around 2001 or 2002. Well, it was published in 2001. Okay. And Eric, I don't know how I really found you to send a copy to. Belinda Anderson told me that she knew of someone who was looking for a book to be reviewed and I think she passed your contact information on to me and I had never really written a book review before so I was like well this will be a challenging exercise I'm scared to death of it that's probably something I ought to do well you rose to the occasion that review was uh, excellent I used it in so many ways I think it's published on Amazon still and you were a generous and kind man to give me that review and it was so positive and the most important thing is you got the book and you nailed it when you said this smacks of a memoir this is a fictional memoir and that's exactly what it was Hmm. and I didn't even realize that that's what I'd written your current book is uh, the Psalms of Israel Jones through West Virginia University Press and I just finished that uh, very recently and enjoyed it quite a bit Um, I'm always curious as to the birthing process for stories that writers tell. Uh, who is the title character, Israel Jones? Israel Jones is an aging rock musician um, in the mode of Bob Dylan. His health is poor. He's had a couple of heart attacks, and uh, but he's still on the road, still touring. And uh, as the book begins, he gets um, uh, uh, his son Tom gets a phone call saying, "You better go check out your dad. He's really getting." Weirder and weirder, he's going off the deep end. And Tom is a conservative Christian pastor, of all things, for a rock star's son to turn into. Mm-hmm. Well, Tom has his own problems with his congregation, as it turns out, as you know now. And that's a good time to get out of Dodge and go see what Dad's doing. I thought the whole notion, because you, you, the stereotype of the preacher's kid is the wildest guy in town. Right. And so Israel Jones, the legendary hard-living, hard drugging, rock and roll deity, his kid turning to become a pastor makes sense to me. Once again, you got my book, Eric. Thanks. Now, Israel Jones, isn't he's the title character, but he's not really the, the main character, although he permeates every fiber of everything in this book. Right. It's like um, Nick Carraway is to Jay Gatsby mm. in that book. Uh, I knew right away the birthing process was that I wanted to write about this larger-than-life rock legend, uh, and I had in mind Bob Dylan, Neil Young, you know, my heroes, and I knew I wanted a dark book. I wanted to examine some dark things. Well, um, how to inhabit this uh, larger-than-life character, you need someone to play him against, and I thought of a son, and the son would be then the I point of view character, you know, following his father around, and he's, uh, the stakes are high here. What Tom would really like to have is an explanation from his father, you know, why did you abandon our family, Uh, why did you contribute to my mom's suicide, and I had to be the one to find her in the bathtub with her wrist slit, and uh, what better way than to go join up the tour and follow his dad around, and he'd also like an apology, 
which, you know, given this uncommunicative rock legend, you know, is going to be hard to get. The uncommunicative rock legend part, the uncommunicative part, um, <clears throat> was, it struck me as, Israel Jones has very little dialogue in this book. Uh, mm. Everything revolves, he's the planet they all orbit around. He and his supporting cast uh, are the supporting characters of this book, but for most of it, he's holed up in the bus mm-hmm. in his room, and you don't know exactly what's going on in there. Right. Um, there's much speculation on the part of everybody as to what Israel Jones is up to in there, including his son, right. who doesn't firmly believe that that he has given up his hard-living ways. You've just reminded me of one of the other impetuses I had to write the book, which was what fame does to you. I've mm-hmm. always wondered, gosh, how, did, how are you... Bob Dylan, you know, how are you, Neil Young, and really exist in the world? And I think your world must shrink terribly. And I found, in exploring this character, that yeah, his life is a room at the back of the bus, three feet in front of a microphone, and then occasionally he splurges and spends a night at a day's end. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty much his world. Splurges for a day's end. Right. Um, uh, other major characters in this that that crop up. Uh, one of the most colorful is Murphy, uh, Israel's longtime manager. Um, how did how did he come about? Well, I'm glad you brought Murphy up. He interests me too. And when I read aloud, sometimes I have to warn my audience. Uh, Murphy has a speaking role in this, so watch out. His language is so mm-hmm. coarse. Um, He's kind of the Metatron for Israel's God. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, I had read biographies of Dylan, you know, who was a major influence, and found out that he had some larger-than-life managers. One guy, I forget what his name was. We had this guy for years, and apparently, you know, you had to go through the manager to get through Dylan, and um, to get to Dylan. And this guy was, you know, something—a real character in his own right. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to reproduce that if I could, and what better way than a manager? And somebody's got to be taking care of the guy, and if he's sworn off drugs and off women, he's got to have someone. It turns out to be Murphy, and in a way they're married. Yeah. They even refer to this in the book. And he seems like the perfect soul to, for all of his flaws to keep Israel's bus moving from venue to venue and keep this... I mean, it's it's money for him too. He's getting his right. percentage, but um, he genuinely seems to care for his boss, and, right. and I love how he always calls him boss, not the boss, just boss. Boss, right? Yeah, Murphy does care, and that makes him somewhat sympathetic, and that's a good thing. And Israel, although he's you know crotchety as can be, and uh, has largely abandoned you know so much in the world. Um, I think he's a fairly sympathetic character, despite mm. that. I, I hope you found him so. I, I enjoyed him quite a bit. Um, Great. Um, he kind of adds to the... Uh, writers often speak in terms of world-building, and you very often see this applied to fantasy and science fiction writers because they've got to create the world that the reader will believe in in order to mm. tell their stories as fantastical as they might be. we got to buy into their world. You do quite a bit of world-building in this novel, too, in just setting up the world of Israel Jones, or this world where Israel Jones is this rock legend, creating uh, other characters that have surrounded him, because he's got what I calculate to be a nearly 50-year career. Exactly, right. right. He's been going at it since um, early 60s. 
maybe even late 50s, you're right. And there's so many people that have crossed his path or been members of his band, a right. um, lot of history with that. And so we get to meet a few of these people along the way who we really feel the history of, and they may not have very much to say to one another in these scenes, but you always get the sense that there's a past between these folks. Right, you're reminding me of the guy that they go to the church mm-hmm. to see, sing. I'd forgotten about him, but he turns out to be an important character. Mm-hmm. Can, uh, when Tom's looking into what actually happened to Israel on the road, he can go to him. I won't give too much away mm-hmm. here, but there is a secret, a yeah. mystery that Tom uncovers, and he can go to this guy and uh, get some validation of whether that's true or not, or just a rumor. And a lot of this, Tom's having to put together some of the, the pieces of the puzzle because his dad, like you said, is very uncommunicative and just doesn't say a lot. And so he, and a lot of it is just that strained relationship between father and son. Yet Tom has to kind of put the pieces together based on other people's testimony about what is really going on. Exactly. Like um, the young guy, the member of the band that... Uh, uh, he, he becomes friends with Tom on the bus, Patrick. Mm-hmm. He has to be the guy to show him this photo album of, look, you know, your dad's kept up with you and your career. He's got these pictures and all. And Tom is absolutely you know, flabbergasted mm-hmm. by that. Because we learned Tom cares. had a music career mm-hmm. to some degree himself and was even right. in part of Israel's band um, early on. But it was, it was a contentious thing. Sure, to be the son of you know a legend like uh, who remembers Julian Lennon? Mm-hmm. You know, after John died, Julian had a career mm-hmm. and he sounded pretty good. But you know, he was gone in a flash, and you can imagine what some of his records were reviewed like. Um, who else comes to mind? Uh, Jacob Dylan. Mm-hmm. Now, there's an example of a guy though that's hung in there and made a career despite being you know, Bob Dylan's famous son. But it must be awfully hard to do. Oh yeah. That was uh, one of the things that struck me as I spent probably about half this book trying to figure out if Israel Jones was an analog for an existing musician. You've already mentioned Bob Dylan, who was on my list of possible candidates. Johnny Cash came to mind. Um, uh, George Jones came to mind to some degree, although different music genres. Uh, but similar hard living right. kind of kind of background. There are any number of Willie Nelson, yeah, um, that could qualify as living legends who are still out there on the road right. in their buses doing tours. Right. Um, but the what I found to be the beauty of this, after about halfway through, I gave up trying to figure out who this guy is because he is kind of his own guy, and you create mm-hmm. in your world building. Um, like it, it lists you, you don't list all of them but it's referred to that he has so many albums to his credit um, it, like Greatest Hits Volume 8 <laughs> is is mentioned at one point mm-hmm. so you have to assume there are going to be more than 8 albums to right. compile that he's probably had dozens at this point Right. some oh. of them good, some of them bad I'm really pleased to hear you say that Israel is his own man, mm-hmm. and I was gratified when early readers of the book told me that, that, uh, yeah, they could see Dylan. And it's fun to be a Dylanologist and go through and see the Dylan-esque you know, qualities in the book, but yet he's not Bob Dylan in any way, shape, or form. He, but I, in my head, I know what Israel Jones looks like, and it's not <laughs> really based on, I mean, partially it's based on your description because you, yeah. you describe his his 
costume of right. the long morning coat, uh, black coat. And so you, you kind of get a Johnny Cash feel from that, the man in black, but he, he's kind of got his own thing, and I can picture him in my head. Cool. Um, Do you know the Texan singer Jimmy, Jimmy Dale Gilmore? I've heard the name. That's who I had in mind. Oh. And he's not a, you know, a living legend exactly like Dylan mm-hmm. is. But um, he's gangly, and he's got these long arms, this scraggly blonde hair, and uh, a voice that's really, really eccentric. I had him in mind visually, because I didn't want to envision Dylan. I wanted to see somebody different. But channeling Dylan's voice enabled me to write the lyrics mm-hmm. to these songs that I came up with. I was going to ask about that because you do um, five or six songs in yeah. the book and with the lyrics, um, and and it's always fun to to see either Tom, oh this he's going into Earth, he's going into one of these other songs, and Earth is not the full title, but that's right. the shorthand. Sons live inside the Earth, or yeah. something like that. They have right. their shorthand for each of each of these songs, and right. they know when they're going into it. And sometimes we see things in kind of italicized type through Israel's perspective. And I got away with that, you know, to do a point of view shift deep in the novel, but it was taking a chance. You know, usually when you shift points of view, you set that up, you know, one chapter from one person's point of view, next chapter from somebody else's. So it's taking a risk by deep in where something very serious is going to happen to suddenly get into Israel's head. But I've not had any reviewer and certainly West Virginia University Press accepted the book. It didn't say anything about that, that I needed to revise that. So it's fun to me that I got by with that. Well, just to give listeners a, a glimpse into the novel a little more, give them a little bit more of a, a, a tooth hold on, on why this, I mean, these are, are interesting characters. What is their story? Um, the way I say it, Israel's life probably would have continued on with him touring and, and doing this day in and day out, except for um, a new factor which is entered in, which is a cult that calls themselves the Holy Theater of Transcendent Joy yeah. that has begun showing up at Israel Jones shows and doing some rather weird behavior. They certainly are an important part of the book, and I didn't realize it at first. <clears throat> I thought that Tom and Israel would run around and go to these sacred sites together, that maybe they would go to Gethsemane in uh, Kentucky and do things like that. And they do wind up at the men's retreat, which is a sort of sacred place. But that didn't work out. And I had the cultists, the slashers, the cutters. uh, Tom has different names for them. I had them show up and thought they would just be one thing. The Furies. The Furies, that's right. But as uh, the drafts went by, and I had reviewers say, oh, no, Ed, they are extremely important. And actually, they um, really create the book's arc as they get weirder and weirder, mm-hmm. while Israel gets stranger and stranger, and the uh, distance between them sort of shrinks. They really want to meet Israel, and they think they'll go through Tom and get him to you know, set up, be a liaison between them. That doesn't exactly happen but it certainly does raise the stakes. As they keep showing up, they get more and more um, eccentric. Israel seems to not want to prevent them from doing that. As a matter of fact, he sort of says, well, you know, they're not doing anything that I wouldn't have done at their age, while Tom and the band members are rather horrified. And there are even deeper connections beyond that, that um, these 
important things that these characters play into um, that become very personal in, in the lives of Tom and Israel Jones um, and more contention between them. Um, music would seem to be pretty important to you um, as it has factored into your previous novels as well. Um, and you're a writer who's, at least I know, as known for weaving autobiography into the writing. Did that play much of a factor in this? It absolutely did. Um, I was a rock musician from like 8th or ninth grade until I was a junior in college. Played all kinds of um, venues, both dangerous and not, you know, in the West Virginia coal fields when I was in like ninth grade. And I found out how rock band works. And although I've never experienced anything like a national tour of somebody with the celebrity status of Israel Jones, I know how a band operates. I know what playing the guitar feels like. So I felt that these are experiences that I could turn to gold with Israel and even wound up writing those song lyrics. That was fun. Or just making up song titles. Mm -hmm. I had a blast with that. And so, yes, my experience paid off. Um, I believe this is the least autobiographical of my novel otherwise, mm-hmm. although I was just telling my class this morning that sometimes I look at some of the details, like Israel's mom, and I think, well, no, maybe there's some of my own mom in there. So it's just the way I work, I guess, mm-hmm. to use details from my own life. And that was one of the more affecting parts of the story, um, mm-hmm. when Israel finally reveals some things about his own past that Tom was completely unaware of up until that point and the revelations start coming out and you start realizing why Israel Jones is the way he is not to justify it necessarily but you can at least see cause and effect Um, great that you saw that I'm I'm gratified that you found that rewarding after your investment you know that sort of comes at the end uh, religion plays a big factor in this novel uh, the main character, Tom, is is a minister struggling with some challenges of his own. And Israel's portrayed as a man who who kind of sort of like Johnny Cash went through his faith period where he wrote a number of gospel albums and um, then sort of fell off or seemingly fell off the, the wagon as far as Tom is concerned. Right. And Tom struggles with whether or not any of this is, is still currently in Israel's bag of tricks if, if religion is still something he contends with but as the novel opens we open in kind of a charismatic church exactly snake handlers mm-hmm. and Israel and Tom are both there together yeah um, and uh, Tom is wondering you know why uh, I came to this concert at Charleston West Virginia where Israel is supposed to play and they take me on this side trip to the snake handling church so it's mm-hmm. kind of a mystery it's kind of a neat hook to the novel uh, that used to be in chapter three, and I moved it to chapter one, you know, so it would be a good hook. And you have to wait till near the end of the book to find out the significance mm-hmm. of that church. Yeah. And a lot of the, I, I loved how you, you never really did an info dump mm-hmm. on any of the, the information of Israel's background. It all kind of filtered out a little bit at a time. Um, I, I enjoyed how, how we were allowed to take a journey and, and find this information. I try to avoid info dumps mm-hmm. if at all possible. As you know, writing your own fiction, that's the kind of boring stuff that could turn off readers. Did you have much 
experience yourself as far as like snake handling churches or mm-hmm. have you been to anything like that to, to gain experience for to, to mm-hmm. speak to in this book? I'm sure readers are going to wonder that. Mm-hmm. And um, I got to teach this wonderful course uh, at Sinclair Community College from which I retired called Appalachian Folkways. And I would assign my students projects. They all had to go do something. And uh, one of the last years I taught it, a woman actually went to a snake handling church. I believe this one was in Kentucky. And she filmed the whole thing. They had no problem whatsoever. The congregation did with her filming it. So I got great details from watching that film. For instance, they actually had signs up there misspelled, no bad language, L-A-N-G-A-G-E, no long hair on women. And, you know, that's the kind of details. Where could I have gotten those without somebody actually recording them in a church? I've been to a number. I haven't been to a snake handling church, although I've been to a few where I started looking around to see <laughs> where the boxes were. I enjoyed a passage in your book where you speak to the ability of a performer to engage the audience. We talk about Israel Jones engaging the audience, and you can lose the audience again and regain the audience. It's an ebb and flow right. kind of thing, which made me. Th- made me think that you had personal experience in how to do that. But it also made me think about that it's very like uh, ministers as well. There can be a lot of similarities in performance in the ministry Sure, in, in that as well. That's a nice uh, analogy that you've uh, painted there. Um, that's more from research, you know, from research on Bob Dylan. He can be so infuriating. He can... Uh, Entire concerts can be just awful. Uh, I've read descriptions of them where suddenly he's gone back, just like this. Now, before I even started reading this novel, I made kind of a discovery about it, which was rather surprising to me. I was searching Amazon for my last name one day, as you do when you have a book out, like I do. Right. And uh, in addition to the surprising number of other people named Fritjus who have books... Uh, <laughs> the Psalms of Israel Jones kept popping up in my searches, and I couldn't figure out why. And I just sort of chalked it up for the first couple of times that I saw this as, oh, well, I, you know, I, I wrote a couple of reviews of Ed's previous books. I bet he, you know, quoted me in the front matter. I need to go and look at that. That would be kind of a neat, a neat thing to see. And then I noticed it. It was saying that the reference was from page 99 of this book. <laughs> And it let me look at it there on the screen, and there I see the f- sentence, Thankfully, he gives me the cell phone number of Dr. Carlo Fritschews at Mount Zion <laughs> Hospital in Boston. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have a namesake character. <laughs> you do. And Eric, I wish I could explain exactly how that happened, but, you know, we've never met. Mm-hmm. Your name is not one you hear a lot, and it apparently had embedded itself in my memory somehow. And I saw this professional, this Dr. Fritschus, as, um, well, a professional. He's kind of funny, kind of self-conscious, you know, about this uh, program he has that Israel is on. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just seemed like the perfect time to use your name. <laughs> and I'm glad you got a kick out of it and didn't want to sue me or something. Oh, no. I, I loved it. And when I kind of thought about it after hitting that point in the novel because I went back I had not read the novel at that point when I hit that point um, I realized you know Dr. Carlo Fritschus is um, responsible for this health program that is kind of a a diet and 
also meditation program. Very new agey. Very new agey for, for maintaining optimum cardiac health. And I realized that without Dr. Carlo Fritschus, Israel Jones probably would have gone back to his drinking and drugging ways and died a much earlier death. <laughs> right, and Tom never gotten his understanding and all this. So, Without my way, namesake, this novel doesn't happen. He's the linchpin <laughs> character. <laughs> well, the novel has many twists and turns to it, and at no point was I able to really suss out what was about to happen. Um, I, you know, there's a lot of foreboding and a lot of, of things that are set up that you, you know are going somewhere, but you don't know exactly what's going on because you're kind of on Tom's journey. He doesn't know what exactly is going on. Uh, he thinks he has a bigger picture, and every time he thinks it, something comes along to contradict it or at least throw a wrench into the works. Um, That's a wonderful description. <laughs> I mean, the reader is kind of along for Tom's ride, him being yeah. the protagonist uh, point of view character in this. Yeah. I'm hoping that uh, other readers will feel like that the novel is compelling. And I'm a literary writer, so, you know, first characters, and then Mm -hmm. the plot comes from the characters. So I was along for the ride, too. Well, I very much hope folks uh, check this out and go on the journey, too. There's, you you run a danger in some things of, of giving too much information away, but I think we've given folks enough to, to hook them if they're going to be interested in, in, um, take the ride of Israel Jones' son and see the, this legendary rocker and his uh, trials and travails through Tom's eyes. Me too. Thanks for not giving away too much, yeah. but yet you certainly have uh, been tantalizing. What are you working on now? Well, um, funny you should ask. I have a novel right now that uh, WVU Press is reviewing about a woman who um, is from Dayton, but she finds that an hour south of Dayton, you find the Appalachian community, which I, did. I didn't know for a long time. And she becomes enmeshed in this family um, of a widower who has a small daughter, about seven years old, and the uh, mother has died mysteriously. She is attracted to that daughter, perhaps more than she is to the widower, although that will change as things go on. And she finds herself enmeshed in the family as maybe something like a tutor nanny. So she leaves her job in Dayton and moves down there to be this tutor nanny and finds, among other things, that trees communicate with her. (laughs) So are we moving into kind of fantastical realms? Well, it still is realistic fiction, Mm -hmm. but... um, and my earlier reviewers told me, you've got to really do a job here, Ed, to sell that to us, because mm-hmm. this also might be the pathetic fallacy also. So I've worked hard on that to see if I can sell that to readers. And um, so far, a lot of early critics have said that it seems to work. And now I'm working on the sequel to that novel. Thanks again to Ed Davis for giving of his time, not only for the interview, but also to be a workshop presenter at the literary festival itself. If you couldn't tell from the interview, I really enjoyed the Psalms of Israel Jones and recommend it. You can find Ed Davis online at davised.com. That's all one word, davised.com. 
There you can learn more about his books. You can even find his books for sale online. But, as always, we recommend you support your local brick-and-mortar bookstores by either finding copies for sale there or by asking them to order copies for you. Ed's website also has his schedule of speaking events and appearances, one of which is the West Virginia Book Festival, which returns to the Charleston Civic Center on Friday and Saturday, October 23rd and 24th. West Virginia Writers itself will have a booth there. And if you're an author or a member of West Virginia Writers and you'd care to share some of that booth space with us on a scheduled basis on either of those days, you can contact us at westvirginiawriters at gmail.com to learn more information about scheduling. Also, the West Virginia Book Festival has been, in years past, the very place where we debut our annual writing contest entry form. So it's going to be your very first chance to get your hands on one of those and see what contest categories are coming up for 2016. There'll be some great workshops offered at the festival, too, including one by Kat Pleska and Fran Simone, who were among the other workshop presenters at the Lewisburg Literary Festival this year. Their workshops at the Literary Fest got great reviews, so you can't go wrong signing up for their team workshop at the West Virginia Book Festival. I myself will be around splitting my time between the West Virginia Writers Booth, the Mountain State Press Booth, the Inspiration for Writers Booth, and wherever author Neil Gaiman happens to be. We'll have more information about this in the coming weeks, both here and on our organizational website, wvwriters.org. And just a little shameless self-promotion here, I've begun a new podcast. It's called The Consternation of Monsters Podcast, and it's where I do radio-style podcast adaptations of some of the short stories from my new collection, A Consternation of Monsters. You can hear them through iTunes simply by searching for Consternation of Monsters, or you can download them directly from my website, mrherman.com. They're a great way to get a taste for the sort of stories I tell in my book. And shortly after posting the very podcast you are now listening to, I'm going to post an episode of the Consternation of Monsters podcast as a bonus track in the usual West Virginia Writers podcast feed. You can find more information about my book, my ongoing blog, my signing dates, and more at mrherman.com. Thus ends the shameless self-promotion. Our opening voiceover was provided by Marcus Vowell. Our show's theme music is used with permission by its composer, Pops Walker, whose albums can be found at cdbaby.com. This podcast is a production of Mr. Herman's Production Company Limited and was recorded at the Mr. Herman Studios atop a hill in Greenbrier County. <laughs>